Hey, you're listening to an Upbeat Rewind featuring Louis Amira on June 8th, 2020. Louis is the co-founder and CEO of digital growth agency Crimson Advantage and former head of product at Google with seven years of leading multi-hundred million dollar projects. We talk about Google's culture and the importance of having a strong digital presence. You're listening to an Upbeat Rewind featuring Louis Amira. This is Upbeat with beatboxer, musician, speaker, and show host, Parker K. Lewis, thank you very much for being on Upbeat today. I appreciate it. Oh, happy to be here. Excited to hopefully get a little taste of the beat as well. Excited to, <laughs> to hear it live. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'd love to kick this off just by learning a little bit more about you uh, and maybe your background. So could you fill us in on your background, your upbringing? What was it like? What were some of your original passions? Just that kind of stuff. Anything you'd like to share? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot there. Uh, everybody has a unique background. Mine has a couple interesting journeys and and relevant points. So um, I was born in Southern California. I moved 20 times growing up. I played all sorts of sports like most folks did, but I got very fixated on golf because my dad's a golf professional. So from about 12 or 13, I gave up the other sports, started playing golf competitively, got recruited. I was ranked very highly nationally, got recruited to a bunch of different schools and ended up playing golf competitively at Harvard, if you want to call it competitively. Our, uh, our team's competitive amongst those, those schools up in the Northeast, but not so much with the, the golf powerhouses. But played up there, had a great time. Uh, it was fortuitous because my golf game probably would not have carried me all the way to the professional ranks. So got a degree in renewable energy, which was pretty useful for my first year out of college and then not at all useful uh, when I got to Google and started moving around to uh, the more of the marketing and, and growth side of the world. So from moving all over the country playing golf to settled up here outside New York City, leading a growth marketing agency, seen some interesting things along the way. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. It's a good kind of brief summary just to catch the listeners and I up on uh, on a little bit more about who you are and what you do. What kind of stood out to me there was uh, that you're you're pursuing golfing a little bit too and that your dad was a golfer. I guess, would you say that's like your number one passion or, or it was, or uh, maybe expound on like when that became a big role in your life and when you knew that golf was something you wanted to pursue? Yeah. Um, so I actually liked playing ice hockey a lot more when I was growing up. That was my favorite sport, but I was too short, fat, and slow to uh, really compete in that at the highest level. So golf was much more my speed. I ended up probably about 12 or I won a couple of tournaments when I was 10, 11, 12. But when I was getting about 14, 15, uh, what would that be freshman, sophomore year of high school, I really, really started to get pretty good and, and ranked pretty highly in, in the country and the world. Um, I played with a bunch of the names, if you follow golf, uh, a bunch of the guys that now play on tour. I've got a good list of former friends, I guess now acquaintances that have won PGA Tour events. And it was, I guess, senior year, junior year into senior year. I'd had pretty good grades uh, throughout high school, and I was a very confident young man. And I said, I'm going to go to Harvard. I am going to come out as president and play on the PGA Tour as well. I'm going to be Tiger Woods and president. And currently, neither of those are on track to happen. It was a very humbling experience, which was uh, for the better. So, yeah, it was it was kind of always a thing because my dad was uh, – I was always going with my dad to the golf course, and my mom was taking me to tournaments, and it was a, a good time growing up. But it was also – I think I was sort of smart enough to know what the odds were 
And I said, I really should hedge my bets just in case this golf thing doesn't work out. I think that was the real message. I told people I wanted to be Tiger Woods and then president, but it was really like, if this doesn't work out, I want to make sure that I'm set up pretty well. And it was uh, by far the best decision that I ever made for athletic or academic or most any purpose. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Would you say that golf uh, and maybe golfing with your dad too, like was something you clung to a little bit? like when you were moving around so much? Cause you mentioned you, you moved 20 different times, which is crazy. I mean, I can kind of relate because I moved a lot growing up, but I don't think I, I hit that 20 mark. So just moving around a lot, would you say golf is something you clung to? Yeah, it was, uh, when I was younger sports, sports was always a big thing. And on both sides of my family, my mom's side, my dad's side. So I would play soccer and baseball and hockey and all that stuff. But, um, when I got a little bit older, I was, it was easy to blend in with whether it was the golf team or going to the course and meeting up with other juniors. Like my friends were mainly the guys that were from all over the country. Um, we would all go to the same tournaments around the country and it made it easier. I ended up going to four different high schools. So I had uh, a little different high school experience than most people, a couple in Florida, one in California. So I was all over the place, but yeah, it was, I, I would say that I was more golfer first than anything else. And just having that, that friend group, but it didn't really matter where I moved because I knew I would see a lot of those guys every month to two months uh, throughout the year playing tournaments. And when I ended up moving other places, I would just identify with the golf team. And then usually I, as high school kids are like you make friends with their friends. And it wasn't like I was sitting there on my own at lunch the first day. Uh, it made me a little more talkative and much better at making friends. So it was um, a little stressful at times when I left one of the places I didn't like as much. Um, it was easier to leave, but when I liked some of the places. It was a lot harder to to up and leave and go to a different school across the country, but it definitely is a huge part of who I am. Awesome. And and where did I'm just trying to get a feel of the timeline here, but where did uh your your passion for like digital media come into play and like choosing what things you were going to study at Harvard? Yeah. So, I remember distinctly I was in a hotel room uh freshman year, just after freshman year had finished. So, uh, typically, your first year, you take all the, um, you have to take a certain number of classes. They've changed the curriculum a little bit, but you have to take a certain number of classes spread across a bunch of different disciplines. So I was pretty sure I was going to take something like business. There's no business de- degree there, but I was going to try and take something like that. I was not going to be a doctor. I was not likely to be a physicist or anything like that. So I said, oh, economics sounds cool. So I'll do that. And then I ended up taking a, uh, I remember flipping through this 500 page book of all of the classes. Uh, and I got to this environmental science and public policy thing. And this would have been 08, uh, 2008. So I was, renewable energy was getting cool, but it wasn't like people were driving Teslas or anything like that. It was not solar powered this and wind farm that it was, um, actually tough economic times kind of across the board. But I said, this is, this is really cool. Like it's a, obviously renewable energy. It's great for the environment. It's a great infrastructure bet that, uh, the developing world and uh, a lot of other places like we need to have that in those places because if we have all of the developing countries using coal and some of these dirtier methods like the, the world on the whole is going to be much worse off so I said I want to be part of that I want to help build or finance or lead the operations of places like that so I took one or two classes sophomore year absolutely fell in love with it uh, it was between renewable energy and history. And when I found out that I had to write like a 200 page thesis for history, I said, well, that's out. So (laughs) I'll just, I'll take history classes. I love Greco-Roman history. I love 
Caribbean history, a bunch of different things, but I just was not going to write a 200 page paper. So I ended up with an economics degree and a renewable energy degree. And uh, so junior year of college, I interned at a utility in the renewable energy department in Las Vegas, which was a just a wild uh, experience all the way around. Google was one of the companies that came in and actually pitched us because they wanted to build a solar farm. It was really cool. And they were looking for a number of different things, but they were trying to make their operations greener. And I kind of reinforced, like, yes, this is cool. I want to be part of this. So after that, um, went back, ended up working at a smart grid startup right out of college for about a year, which was a very good time. Loved the professor that uh, started the car that was one of the founders of the company. Uh, worked there for about a year and they um, they sort of changed their vision from, hey, let's grow this as fast as possible to, hey, this is going to be more like a five to seven year journey. And in talking with uh, both of them, both of the, the founders, I said, hey, I, I think I need to do something else uh, with the next you know five to seven years. I don't think I can spend that all on a startup. I have some other things that I want to learn. And about that same time, one of my good friends from college was trying to hire somebody to his team at Google. So he said, hey, I think you'd be a, a great fit. Let me talk to my boss and see if we can get you to join our team. And that was sort of the, the takeoff. I, I loved technology. I loved the future of it all. But I kind of wanted to go to Google to get a to get into the renewable energy, the Google.org and Google Energy team. And I, I did a couple of projects with, with them, which was interesting. But I ended up finding out that uh, the digital marketing world was wildly fun, interesting, scientific. Uh, and it ended up suiting my skill set pretty pretty well. And I found that out in the first roughly year that I was there. Uh, and the rest is history after that, which we can get into. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that answers the question I was going to ask, like, how did you go about getting into Google, which you just shared that with us. And that seems like a really, really cool story. Once there, what what kind of was like the work-life balance or, or like the culture of Google? Um, you know, right off the bat, I think of this movie. Oh, shoot. What's the, the name internship? of it? The internship. Thank you. Yes. yes. <laughs> I think of inter the internship and I'm like, how similar is it to that? Like, how accurate is that movie? The, the two movies I get asked about in general when people find out a little about my backstory are The Social Network, which was about Facebook on Harvard's campus, like the early days, and then uh, The Internship at Google. <laughs> so the internship was, um, so I was there right after it finished shooting, but before it came out. I remember because I used to sit right next, right outside the um, the CMO's office and I was friends with her, with her assistant and I got to see the original script and all sorts of, it was really cool. Um, I was reading it and I was very new there going like, yeah, there's no way this place is like that. And within a, a month, I had tried to pay at something that seemed like a Starbucks. No, it was part of Google's campus. It's free. <laughs> Just show your badge. Um, I'd ridden on the bus back to San Francisco from down in the South um, San Francisco Bay Area and the leather chairs on the Wi-Fi. I had not seen them play Quidditch. So that I think was a stretch, but they might still play that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they have things like they've got the massage chairs, the nap pods. I went and got my desk ergonomically uh, positioned to how 40 inches off the ground or whatever, like my wrist height was. So it was, it was pretty crazy at the start. But when you break it down and like when you see through some of the movie and when you understand Google's culture a little more, you realize that it's all in an effort to make you very comfortable and make you want to spend time there before work, after work, which some people read into the wrong way. And, and it's very easy to do that. Like, hey, your laundry, just do your laundry here. And hey, take a nap here and have dinner here and just stay forever. If you get caught up in it and you just spend all day and all night there, like, yeah, it's, it's not a good setup. But 
if you are like, I would say most employees and you, you use 10% of the perks, maybe you get a massage once a month and you go to a fitness class, maybe once a week, something like that. You eat the free lunch. They're like, they're, it is, they care a lot about their employees. The bigger the company, Scott, it's a little different now that people kind of go just for those perks. Like, Oh, I want to go and see what that's all like. So there's a little more entitlement now than maybe when I had before, just before I had first gotten there where more, more people had been there a long time. It was like those perks got added. Google used to be an incredibly cheap company. They bought cheap furniture from companies that had gone bankrupt at the beginning. And now it's thought of as this like lavish place that you can just go and get anything you want. Like if you're staying at the Ritz Carlton, but no, it, it's been, it was a, it was a great experience. The internship was generally pretty accurate. I don't think they have hunger game style um, ways to decide who gets full-time jobs, but uh, <laughs> for the most part, it is a, a wildly cool company and you can't really appreciate it until you're fully in it and wandering around looking at other teams and trying to volunteer for other com- uh, projects and that sort of thing. Like it is um, a very, very cool company that uh, I think could explain itself better, but there are, are very good reasons that it doesn't try to. Yeah. Well, and thanks for expanding on all that. That's really fascinating to hear about and learn about. Um, it's definitely not every day you get kind of that inside look. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing that. And it's also fascinating too, just the idea of like, yeah, they make it comfortable. Uh, so obviously like the most optimized and ideal productivity and people not even having to be there all the time to give their best effort and their best work and, and access their best creativity. Uh, but at the same time, that could also be a bad thing, you know, it's where you're just never with your family anymore and you, and you stay at this fun place all the time. So that's, that's an interesting thing to think of. I, I tell the story occasionally that, um, there would be, when I used to live in San Francisco and work down uh, at the headquarters in Mountain View, there would be weeks that would go by. I would get on the shuttle at 6.45 or 7.15 or 7.30, something like that. Get down there either to, to work out in the morning, have breakfast, work all throughout the day, get dinner at 6 or 6.30 whenever they served it, get on the shuttle to come back. I wouldn't touch my wallet until Friday night. I could go a week without touching a bill or a credit card or anything. Like I might as well have not had it on me. So your badge was just what you needed to get everything that you needed in life for four or five days. And it wasn't until you went out for a drink on a Friday night that you'd go, oh, wow, I haven't, I've literally only done Google things for the last four and a half days. So yeah, it's, um, uh, it's a different world. It's kind of like a college campus. If you go there straight from college, I can see how it would be very seamless. But if you're going from having worked somewhere, like I worked at a very small startup that did not have the money that Google had, it was a very jarring experience, but yeah, it, it's something that I think was a good experience for a lot of people. And I think helps a lot of people get the best out of themselves. And it's an easy target that gets a bad rep, but yeah, I, I think it's a great company. I think the leadership, the founders really have, I think the right vision for what they want the company to do. And luckily they don't listen to as much criticism as they probably could. That's kind of the, the direction that they've gone and they're not going to be a conventional company anytime soon. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and so what were some of the biggest, I guess, key takeaways after working at Google and then now, you know, having your own business, the Crimson Advantage, like what do you see yourself really using all the time that you definitely, I guess, learned or took away from Google? Yeah. So I started off in the marketing department, which was really cool seeing how Google built its brand, uh, how it protected its brand, how it partnered with companies. I was on a team that was in charge of any time the Google brand would show up next to somebody else, whether it was the Super Bowl or 
the World Cup or scholarship programs or any of these things, our team was the one that would execute those, come up with the ideas or partner and, and execute that. And it was the level of the number of times they would say no to things and the level that they would hold uh, themselves to was unbelievable, which was was one, I think, telling bit. I went from there. I was in San Francisco. I moved uh, to New York and worked on the uh, basically the ad management side. So companies that were spending 10 million a quarter, 100 million a quarter, like massive, massive companies that were spending a lot of money on Google ads. We got to you. I got to help use some of that and how we recommended they both structure their ads, but also think about their business. And that level of, I think, understanding of how Google does it, some of the best in the world, applying it to some of the most forward thinking retail brands in the world, thought about their online experience. I remember distinctly in 2014, some director of VP came in and they're like, Amazon is just kicking our butt at every corner. And if I had, if I had thought about that, I would have said, hmm, maybe this is an interesting time to go think about Amazon, 2013 or 14, whatever that was. But anyways, watching, watching that, thinking about all the other companies I got to work with, it was more like the analytical rigor. Hey, give us the proof. Like, it's nice that you're, you have that opinion, but show us. Like, go into this account and show us why you think that or propose the right test. Um, so I think that's kind of how our company operates now is, listen, in general, you're asking us for our hypotheses and our ideas and, and all of that, but we're trying to sign up for just the performance, judge us based on what we do. Everything we do is uh, incent aligning incentives. So for example, like our contracts are month to month, not these annual deals. We're not incentivized to, to take a percentage of what companies spend on ads like a lot of other companies do. We just say, here's a flat fee. We don't want to be incentivized to tell you to spend more so that we make more. If we think it's a bad idea for you to spend money because you're not doing the free stuff well, we're going to tell you not to spend money because you need to do the free stuff well. Like we want your business to succeed, not just the little piece that we we manage. So I think that sort of holistic approach, like companies didn't necessarily ask Google for that. Like the ad clients didn't ask Google for that, but Google had such, has such a huge impact on everybody's business that they in, in general end up listening. And the most of the employees that work there are so well-intentioned that there's a lot more positive conversations that happen outside of like the main subject that you end up talking about, um, which I think we've tried to carry over as best as possible. We're not going to go showering unsolicited advice, but we want people to feel comfortable asking our opinion, but then we ultimately just try and deliver on whatever the, the most important thing is and, and try and talk as little as possible on that side. Well, that's awesome. And I, I love that. Uh, how, how big is, I guess, the uh, the range of clients? Like, do you work with like solopreneurs or influencers or anything, or are you pretty much with like larger companies? We have a couple companies that are startups. We have we have um, been working on our, I guess, solopreneur is the the right word. We haven't figured out exactly what to brand it, but companies that are you know small, they just created their own Shopify store. They've got a couple things that they're selling, or maybe they just have a few things on Amazon. We're trying to help those companies professionalize a bit of what they do. What are the right reports to look at? What are the opportunities you're missing? Where do you go next? That sort of thing. So we help a, a bit on, on a much, I'd say, cheaper scale there and I'd say less time engagement. All the way up to we work with um, a couple holding companies that have several brands underneath it and we manage things across the board for all of those companies. And those are in the tens to 100 million revenue type companies. Uh, we don't work on any billion dollar companies. We're not secretly managing Nike or Rolex or anybody like that, but um, we're not really trying to. We're trying to help 
the companies that are classified as small and medium businesses uh, compete, get much bigger, get their ROI a lot higher and, and just grow. Like we want to show them the path to grow and make it profitable to do so. That's really cool. And I guess for you personally, do you have maybe some favorite clients or some top clients that maybe listeners would recognize? We definitely do. There are a couple that um, that we have on our website. We have a couple case studies up. One of them, I feel like people are either very happy or very sad uh, about this particular company based on where they live. And, uh, but TB12 is one of our companies, Tom Brady's company. Uh, we worked with them in the past. We advise them a little bit now. We work with them less so. Uh, but we've worked with them and they're a fun group. We, we have some golf companies, so Golf Magazine and Golf.com are another couple. Uh, they are, as a, I would say, former golfer, although I still compete, uh, it's really cool to work with them and see what, um, how the golf industry is changing, how they're changing. They just spent a, a lot of time and effort rebuilding their website to cater to the future, uh, what the future of the golf industry looks like, and a couple of brands like that. We've got chocolate companies and uh, dessert companies and auto companies. Like We've got a good mix of uh, different different folks that keep us on our toes, but also the learnings that we get from for example, an auto company is helping us with a nutritious drink company. Like we're doing very similar things, which sounds counterintuitive, but uh, we're going to probably apply that same set of strategies to a beauty company. Uh, it's it's not so much like in the past where if you managed Ford uh, as the, either the marketing team or the ad agency that you were not allowed to go manage Chevrolet or if you managed Ford that uh, you were going to get poached to go work on GM or some other company. Like now it's much different in that respect in the sense that the next CMO of Ford might come from Morgan Stanley or might come from Twitter or might come from uh, any number of different places. And that's perfectly fine because the skills are actually similar and map pretty well. And sometimes you need that, that little bit of a different view. And we, we take that to all of our clients across the board. It's been really cool seeing that, how different things apply to different companies. That is really, really cool, really fascinating. Like you don't have to be necessarily in that niche to, I guess, still be a huge role and a huge player for for a certain brand. So let's see here. Um, it's 2020. How how important, I mean, this sounds like a silly question, but how important is it to have an online presence these days? Like, does it pretty much, like, is it pretty much necessary for everyone nowadays? I gave an example when I was talking somewhere recently, and I, I said, especially in this coronavirus time, if you are a business that doesn't understand or doesn't have something as simple as your Google Maps location, which to be fair is complex for a lot of people that don't know how it works, but if your Google Maps location isn't open or isn't updated, people might not know that they can come to the store and pick things up out at the curb, or they might not know that your restaurant is open or something like that, when in reality, that's all you're trying to do is capture new customers, get people to stop in or or buy from you in some of these tough times. It's not hard to do that, but you have to know that you need to, to do that. So um, the counter example is if you're a hedge fund and you just have a picture of a tree on your website and you're still going to manage your $5 billion, <laughs> like that's that's fine. They don't need, I mean, it would be nice if more hedge funds were more transparent and open, but they don't need to be for, for their clientele. So I would say, yeah, it is pretty much a prerequisite. If you are trying to, if you're trying to grow your business at all, you pretty much have to be online. Yeah. Well, and so what are some first steps? Like, I mean, you mentioned the get to linking your, your business to Google and getting the right address and all that, but what are some steps that people 
let's say speakers, service-based businesses, the the up-and-coming podcasters, you know, that podcasting is becoming a huge thing now, entrepreneurs, startups, like what are some of the first things they can do to really start growing their online presence? Yeah, so the the first thing we recommend if you have a website, so there's there's a, I'd say a number of things, but the first thing, if you have a website, put Google Analytics on there. You might have a Shopify website, you might have Squarespace or something else like that, but just register for a Google Analytics account. If you have any reasonably normal website, it is going to be easy to get Google Analytics on there. And all you do is use it to see how many people come on a daily basis and where they come from. Like, do they come from uh, Twitter? Do they come from other referral sites? Do they come from Google? Do they come from Facebook? You just start to get it. You need that to have a sense of where people are finding you from. Like people aren't waking up in the morning and typing in crimsonadvantage.com. I would love it if they did, but that's just not happening. So we need to know where they're coming from. Uh, that's sort of the the base level is understand the free things. There are cool other things that come after that, like Google Search Console, where you can start to see what things people are searching for on Google before they find your website. Like that's pretty cool. It's not as creepy as it sounds, I promise. But uh, <laughs> so registering for Google Search Console is another one. Uh, in terms of social media strategy and that sort of thing, yes, you should claim all your handles. You should link to them from your website. That actually helps for a number of things like making your organic when people search for you on Google. When people search for Parker Kane, okay, what am I seeing? Okay, yeah, Upbeat's one of the first things. Okay, we're finding out about you, what you say, what you do. Uh, the other thing I would say is make sure that when you're posting, whether it's on social media or, or to your website or eventually you're writing an email newsletter or something like that, make sure that there's something of value there for whoever you think your main audience is. Don't try and make something useful for everybody because you're going to fail. It's going to be useful to nobody. But make sure there's some value. Don't just post Instagram pictures of your dog or the food that you ate or anything like that. If you're giving me like the macronutrient breakdown of what your plate was and why it was better than somebody else, like, okay, I can learn from that. If you're trying to just post or share things because others are doing it or you feel like you need to every day, that is a waste of your time and energy. Just focus on the things you think actually deliver value to people. And not enough businesses is a perfect example. When we go talk with businesses, very few of them have Googled themselves recently. It's shocking. Like we take a, we'll go and search for them, sh uh, show them the, the screenshot of the results, show them their competitors and what they're doing better. And we're just sort of like, do you realize this is even a thing? Do you, do you see that there are problems here? And I think that even just that level of, okay, what are your competitors doing? What are they saying? Don't go copy them, but you should at least understand what they're doing. The people that you aspire to, to be like. What are they saying? What are they doing? Uh, that level of research and using a couple of free tools will get you so much further than a $10,000 a month ad budget that's targeted at everything and not delivering value to anybody. That is phenomenal advice. Uh, and I'm glad you touched on some of those uh, what not to do topics too. Because I was going to ask that, like, what are some of the best things you can do? But also, what are some things that we should avoid doing? Like, you know, posting the nonsense or running yourself into the ground, posting stuff just because you think it's important, like really doubling down on what's going to actually bring value to people. That is really good, really good advice. And on more of a personal level, I guess, I mean, I'm sure listeners will benefit from this as well. But so I, I Googled myself just right now when you, when you were talking about that. And I've done this before, but there's actually a movie out there called Parker Kane. <laughs> and it 
always comes up above me no matter what I do. And, and then you Google like some other podcasters and you see like their profile just pop up. Like this is so-and-so, they're a speaker, they're a podcaster. How do you get kind of that, um, I guess, that Google profile that shows up when someone Googles your name? I think you're talking about the, when you're, unfortunately, when the movie's coming up for yours, you're talking about like what's called the knowledge panel, which usually is pulled from Wikipedia, usually has a picture or a video or articles or something like that. Like if we search for, I don't know, Michael Jordan, since there's so much about Michael Jordan right now uh, with the last dance and everything, that is generally facts that are taken from Wikipedia. Google has assembled a bunch of data points where when somebody searches for something, it's pretty clear what that intent is and they want to surface that. Now that changes over time. So for you, the further we get from 1990 when that movie was out and assuming that nobody does anything crazy, uh, <laughs> maybe you can go out and try and make this like a lower IMDb score or something. That will start to go away over time. And some of the videos that you've got, like you have videos showing up when I search for you. So that will rise in prominence. And with that, more of the other articles will start to show up as well. You can do some proactive things like writing more content, trying to target your name, including things like upbeat alongside that. Uh, you'll see that more comes more comes when you're intentional about what terms you should be you should be targeting. So, yeah, like my advice to you in that scenario would be try to make sure that Parker Kane and Upbeat are coupled anytime you're talking about it, anytime you're uh, posting about it, and make light of the fact that hey, there's a movie out there. Like, trust me, I've seen it a, a bunch of times. You don't want to go see it. Like, make sure you're <laughs> searching for. Like there are things like that that you can make funny and people will actually laugh. Like if you hit the if you hit the movie, you know that you've gone too far. Like go back this direction. Just call that out because I mean anything that people can do, especially in a time like right now with coronavirus and all of the serious things we've got going on in the world, uh, humor has gone much further. Whether it's ads or just people being genuine, uh, don't try too hard because that fails in a different way. But um, yeah, anyways. Just go search for what, what all is showing up and then figure out, okay, it looks like I might need to change the game a little bit um, or I need to write more content. I need to have my Twitter account be a little more uh, prominent and, and go from there. Awesome. Once again, stellar advice. Uh, I appreciate that. I'm going to definitely be researching it and looking into it and acting. Um, and I hope that some of the listeners are, are doing that as well and taking what's being said right now and applying it into their lives and how it makes sense for them. Um, on more of a, I guess, someone who wants to pursue a similar path to you kind of a topic, how can people get started in, I guess, learning about Google ads and growing an online presence and understanding Google Analytics? Like, what are some things they can do to kind of jump into that? It's hard when you don't have a business to work on, a business and spending a decent amount of money. You just won't learn nearly as much, nearly as fast. Your tests will take longer. You won't get a bunch of traffic. Uh, there are a ton of good resources out there. I think YouTube is one of the best. People undervalue. YouTube's the second largest search engine in the world, and nobody really knows or thinks about that. It goes Google and then YouTube. But YouTube is is definitely something to go look at. Search for different, there are a ton of different tutorials. There are curriculums out there. But I think the biggest thing is you could watch and read anything you want all day long for three months. I tried to do the same thing when I first started managing ads, and it was a waste of time. And my teammates were telling me, get into the account, mess up, break something, launch a campaign the wrong way, uh, delete something accidentally. Like You are going to run into these problems, and you're going to learn much more by doing so. My advice for most people would be try and 
find a company, whether it's a family member or a friend or just some random company in your town and, and just say, Hey, I would love to volunteer to, to learn from you guys and maybe help um, manage some of these things. Like it, it doesn't take as long as people think to actually manage. It takes a long time to learn from where the mistakes are. Another piece that I would point out is don't necessarily feel like you have to aim for Google ads. Facebook and Instagram is uh, a huge, uh, a huge area for ads. One of the things our business is actually focused on is TikTok uh, and TikTok ads specifically. They are growing like crazy. We've heard some of the numbers and they are staggering. Don't worry about learning Google ads, learn TikTok ads, learn about Reddit, learn about some of these other places, Snapchat, that there are fewer people focusing on. You will become an expert in those things far faster than you're going to outperform the people that have been managing Google ads for 10 to 12 years. Uh, and being an expert of something is way more beneficial to you and companies than being mediocre at the important thing. Awesome. Yeah, I was actually thinking that. So I, I have a TikTok and I've been seeing ads recently, whereas when I first got TikTok, I, I hardly saw any ads. But now it's kind of getting to that time, I guess, where ads are becoming more of a part of it. And I, I was literally just thinking that the other day, like, I wonder how you get an ad right there. <laughs> it is. Yeah, you'd be perfect. Your account would be perfect for this. I think the engagement would be off the charts. Uh, but yeah, it's it is very similar. So when Facebook and Instagram, well, Facebook, Instagram is part of Facebook for those that don't know for whatever reason, they've updated the Instagram login screen to include Facebook. So it's even more clear, but uh, Facebook ads is built very similar to Google ads and TikTok ads are basically a copy and paste of Facebook and Instagram's uh, user interface. So if you learn how to do, use TikTok, the algorithms are a little different on Facebook and Instagram, but you'll at least know what you're looking at. It won't be like you're trying to read a different language. So anyways, yeah, we're becoming better at TikTok. We're launching some of our first campaigns for a few clients just to start testing it because the numbers we've heard are incredible. Um, and I mean, selfishly, our goal would be to be one of the biggest uh, TikTok ad management companies in the US if we could move that quickly because we think they're, we, we're a little ahead of the curve there. But um, yeah, it's not, it's not that if you understand advertising on the whole, or you understand marketing on the whole, or you just in general get a sense for, okay, people that are watching this probably want ads for that. Like if I'm watching uh, a TikTok video with Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez that are just dancing and that sort of thing, like I probably don't want like a toothpaste commercial right after that. I probably don't want like a, an MX commercial. Maybe I want like a dance lessons class or maybe I want a workout video or something like there are there are contextual things that will sound like obvious things after the fact but it's really just observing trying to read a little bit but really just going and doing and I think the most beneficial part would be volunteering working with whoever you can getting paid less money just to learn as fast as you can by doing because reading I mean they don't teach great classes on this stuff at universities because it's outdated within a year or two years. So you just have to do. Just have to do. That's awesome. Might be the title of this episode. Who knows? I like that. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so let's shift here a little bit. Uh, we're running a little bit out on time, but I wanted to make sure we talk about golf and how that's been a part of your life and who you are. And I just wanted to ask, like, do you still golf? Are you planning to pursue that more? Um, what are some common myths about being a golfer? Let's just kind of break that down real quick. <laughs> there are several um, of all of those things. So yes, I do play. I still compete 
an amateur. I am technically an amateur because I have never accepted any money in, well, I've never won any money in the professional tournaments that I've played. And so I didn't have a reason to accept it. Uh, but I still compete against professionals on a regular basis. I am a plus two handicap for anybody that knows what that means. It's I am supposed to shoot roughly 200 par when I go out and play any given day, which means that I would lose to the pros by five to seven shots. Um, so they are still significantly better. Something that people don't really know quite as much about golfers. Um, it's a little bit different now than it was when I, when I first started, like Tiger Woods really changed the game in a number of ways, but one of them being, he was one of the first to really lift weights seriously and the strength and flexibility, like the combination of how much power golfers generate in a very specific way. You look at them up and down a driving range and be like, man, all these, all these people just look like really skinny, really skinny, lanky, uh, generally taller guys. Um, they look like point guards in the NBA if they weren't quite as strong. So it's not, it's sneaky in that, in that regard, people are much, uh, more athletic than you think and trending significantly that direction. Like a lot of the, um, the game has changed to hitting it much further and you're seeing golfers become much more like athletes that way. So luckily when I was younger, I really liked exercising. I, my freshman year of high school, I worked out with the football team before school, just because it was a small school, one of the high schools. And I live near the strength and conditioning coach. He goes, yeah, come on in. And so I actually started hitting the ball much further at a younger age because I didn't want to be short, fat and slow anymore. Uh, so I've followed that through for the last 15, what's that been, 20 years? Wow, that's embarrassing to say. The last 20 years of my life, I've been working out pretty hard. And I hit the ball much further than most people because I've been uh, working out for a long time. But you'll see if you look at, first of all, how much money these guys make on an annual basis. Like it's five, 10, $30 million a year. Uh, but they are much stronger. And they hit, a, they hit a ball significantly further than you could really appreciate until you stand next to them. So... Uh, if you ever think the golfers are not athletes, which is one of the main myths, go watch a golf tournament and watch from 10 feet away how far some of these guys can hit that little white ball. It is, if you've not seen it in person, it will completely change everything you think about when you see them on on TV, on Sports Center, or any of the golf coverage. So golfers are athletes, I guess, is the thing I've been saying for 20 years I'm going to keep saying. <laughs> awesome. Well, and when you miss, so like when you miss your shots and like those short those short ones too, that don't seem like they'd be that hard. Like how do you mentally just like shrug that off and move forward? Is there some kind of like mental game to golf that just keeps you really calm? And maybe that translates to like real world, like outside of the sport experiences as well. Yeah. Something that I've been working on a lot more on the business side is, is acceptance and it's a requirement to play elite level golf. They, they say the golfers have to have the best short-term memory. So whether you um, play a hole really well, make a birdie or an eagle, or you hit one out of bounds off the house, you have to forget that immediately because it has, it impacts the next shot, but it definitely doesn't impact the next hole. So uh, you're starting over the next, when you get to the next tee box. So really it's just a matter of how much can you focus on what you're doing right now? How much did you prepare beforehand to put yourself in a good spot? And then accepting whatever comes as a result of, of your preparation. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing that applies from golf over to the working world is you're going to have misses. You're going to do something wrong. You're going to have a bad idea. You're going to be overconfident in something that didn't work out. That's fine. Try to understand why whatever it was just happened and then learn from it, but don't beat yourself up over it for the next however long. Like Learn the lesson, 
internalize it and move on to the next thing because it doesn't do anybody good to sulk or to try and get everything back on the next thing because generally compounding in that manner is not the way that you want to go. True. And that's that's really awesome advice. One thing I'm loving about this episode is it's just, you know, there's more like you're you're such a, you know, digital media agency, Google going like freaking business kind of guy. But at the same time, you you are also a golfer and you have outside passions and you still do those things actively. So one big takeaway that I personally am having from this episode is just, you know, it's life doesn't have to only be about business or making money. Like you can, you can have a really good balance. And so what would your advice be for those listening who, you know, maybe want to improve that their balance in life with work and, and then pursuing the other things they enjoy? Yeah, so this brings me back to my freshman year of college, uh, around the time that I was, you know, hoping to be president at Tiger Woods. Uh, in short order, um, the director of the golf programs, he oversaw the men's and women's team. He told us about SMART goals, and I didn't learn the acronym for I, I don't think the first three years I was there. Um, and the point behind SMART goals are you need to set them. They need to be uh, something that you stick to. And then you need to just be sort of accepting to some extent, kind of like that same message, but just have them have the goals. And to your point before about it's not business goals. I don't try and make a certain amount of money every year. I don't try and set goals like that. I've got more, I think half the goals for this year are fitness goals. Like I want to finally run a sub six minute mile. I just ran five miles for the first time yesterday. So like there are a couple of things where I've got, goals that are outside of work and very intentionally have nothing to do with work. Because when I close my laptop, I silence my phone and all that sort of stuff, whether it's at night or on the weekend, like I don't want to go back into the work world. I have a great work-life balance and that I can work on a Saturday and it's totally fine. I love what I do. I love helping people grow. I love helping companies grow. But recognizing that there's so much more outside of that, like I want to one of your earlier questions, my goal after my business career is to go back and play golf professionally, whether that's on the senior tour or something like that. Like I, I stay in shape with that goal in mind and trying to trade more and more time than you have by working 80 hours a week or 90 hours a week. If you're doing that, you have to really think about why you're doing that. Is it because you're doing something you love or is it because you're trying to distract yourself from the fact that you have other things that you wish you could do, but you're too afraid of, or maybe you just haven't found what those things are that really make you happy. Um, spend some time doing that. It is, there's a, um, there's a website called wait, but why? And there are, first of all, everybody should read wait, but why it's uh, a requirement. Second of all, one of the things is you really have to get to know yourself and you get much more uncomfortable in the process of getting to know yourself before you bottom out and really start understanding what makes yourself tick. And you realize a lot of things on that journey. So some of us go through that earlier rather than later. Like I'm an old soul. So I think I have a little more, uh, I've spent a lot more time introspecting than most people, but don't be afraid of that. Don't be sad when that happens. Just know that you're leading towards a life of improvement. You're, you're making steps uh, every day and treat them that way. You're not going to have a string of perfect days. That would be really boring and annoying. So anyways, I would, I would try and be encouraging in, in that regard. Awesome. I'm, I'm going to definitely look up uh, what you were just plugging there. Is that a, is that a book? Sorry. I just want to make sure. No, wait. So it's wait, but I think it's just waitbutwhy.com. but it's a series of there are some short articles and then some very, very long articles. It's a guy named Tim Urban, and he just he writes really long, in-depth articles that'll take an hour, two hours, three hours to read. 
but you will learn so much more about it. First of all, you'll, you'll sound like you will feel like an expert after reading just that article, which is both a good thing and a bad thing, but it opens your eyes to like the human psyche to some extent, to technology, to struggling with things like ADD. I mean, there are a bunch of things that are just, it's a really refreshing approach to that for uh, a lot of people. So, and I don't think I've met a person or recommended it to a person that has read one and not recommended it to more people. So anyways, it's like one of the best, one of the worst kept secrets on the internet is wait, but why? So uh, Tim Urban, if you're listening, return my calls. I want to go have coffee sometime. So <laughs> that's awesome. Well, hey, thanks for, for bringing so much value. Um, so Lewis, what makes you upbeat? Uh, usually it's hitting a good golf shot or helping companies grow. I mean, it's, uh, there's nothing better than hitting a good golf shot, especially when you don't expect it. <laughs> What's your number or who is your number one influence or inspiration? Uh, I would say for a long time, it's probably been Elon Musk. Awesome. Have you ever watched his, this is a side question, but have you ever watched his interviews with Joe Rogan? I listened to one. So this is mid-May 2020. I listened to one that came out a few days ago. Uh, yeah, I try and try and consume anytime he talks at length anywhere. I go and learn something about something I didn't know. And there was a lot about Neuralink in this one, which I'm interested to see how that plays out over the next five, 10 years. I haven't seen that new one, but I've seen the old one and it's, it gets you thinking for sure. Um, if you haven't heard of Neuralink and don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to this one and you will, it is a, an interesting awakening humans to computer interface. It's some crazy stuff. <laughs> Dang. Um, do you have any weird talents or useless skills? In college, when we were uh, finally over drinking age, we developed a uh, pretty decent British accent that unfortunately has gotten pretty rusty. But I'd say that's a, a, a fun one. I don't want to get put on the spot, but I, have a, I could blend in in parts of London. <laughs> Coke or Pepsi or a favorite beverage if you don't like either? Uh, I would say it's really lame to say water, so I'll go with Sprite. I drank a lot of Sprite growing up. Last song you listened to? Ooh, that's a good question. I was always known for listening to remixes in college, and I still do. Any good song remixed into something else, I know it's offensive to some music heads, but I, could, I love a good remix. What's your favorite word? It's not my favorite word, but it's a word that I say too often, and it's a tie between basically and actually. My mom is the reason I say actually. She didn't even know about it until a coworker told her. And basically, everybody says too often. So um, I don't know if they're my favorite, but they're the ones that I rely on a lot. <laughs> and what's your favorite TV show? Right now, my wife and I are watching Money Heist on Netflix, which is uh, which has been intense. But I think The Big Bang Theory, because it speaks to the inner geek in me, and I don't have the deepest sense of uh, critical acclaim. So a toss-up, probably The Big Bang Theory, to be honest. Awesome. That one's a funny one. I don't think I've seen all of it, but... I've seen a lot of it and it got me laughing. Uh, so these are the last two questions. What does music mean to you or how has that played a role in your life? Uh, it is the fastest thing that can change my mood from anything to anything else. Uh, sad to happy, not ready to exercise to exercise, um, wound up to mellow. Uh, so I would say that it is what I rely on when I know that I need to change my mood for some reason. Uh, that's what I use it for for the most part. Awesome. Love that answer. What's your favorite social media platform and where can people connect with you? Uh, favorite? 
it's probably Instagram. Uh, I would say TikTok for business reasons, but Instagram, little known fact, I posted a picture to Instagram every day for two and a half or three years. I did that because I realized that I didn't take enough pictures in my life. I'd forgotten a bunch of things that happened and that was a way to force myself to take a picture every day of whatever it was that was happening that day. And posting it to Instagram was the commitment mechanism. So anyways, if you see my Instagram profile, there's some random boring pictures, but it was just because I wanted to remember that day. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks, Lewis, very much for, for being on Upbeats. I'm going to send this out by, by beatboxing your name real quick. I love it. Lewis Amira. That is the that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Can I, I don't know if ringtones are still a thing, but if they are, I want that to be my ringtone the rest of my life. Awesome. We can make that happen. Definitely. Uh, well, thanks for being on Upbeat, man. I, pre- I appreciate it. Uh, I loved it. Thanks again. Can't wait to chat again soon. This is Upbeat with beatboxer, musician, speaker, and show host, Parker Kerr. Subscribe at parkerk.co.